The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, what a beautiful song, beautiful hymn that will be one day before you in your presence. And Lord, meantime, here on this earth, Lord, we are afflicted with many realities, Lord. We are afflicted with a short vision, Lord, that can't see past this life to what you have created us for. So Father, would you give us faith Faith that looks to you, that looks to the future that you have set apart for your people. And Lord, would you help us to understand the nature, the surety of that faith and in you. So Lord, use use this passage we look at this morning. Would you use the life of Enoch to show us something of what it means to be pleasing to you by faith? And glorify your name, Lord, as you build up your church and increase our joy in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We often use the phrase people pleasers in a negative light. Uh, A people pleaser is someone who, in essence, is a shape shifter, uh, continually adapting to the people around them so that they might be seen positively usually with the end goal of obtaining a a certain benefit or a certain outcome, whether that be social, monetary, position, influence. Some other equivalent negative terms that we use for a people pleaser would be a a suck-up, a brown noser, a yes-man, a doormat. So the question is, why are people pleasers seen in this kind of negative light? I think in essence, someone who has a people-pleasing orientation is ultimately a self-pleaser or pleaser of themselves. And they use other people as a means to pursue their own temporary gain and happiness. And it's this selfish end goal that causes one to frown upon a people-pleaser. But the question is, what if someone was truly a people-pleaser in the sense that they were legitimately for another person's gain or another person's joy or pleasure. Take this into the context of a friendship or marriage. What if my end goal or motivation was for the joy, delight, or pleasure of my friend or spouse? So what does it look like to be authentically pleasing to another person? instead of using them, again, for our own, our own short-term gain or happiness? What does it look like to be authentically pleasing to God as we take this one step further? How does someone become pleasing to God? And that's the core question that we're going to be getting at this morning. So we're, we're going to be looking at Hebrews 11, 
And uh, the past couple of weeks, we've been taking a break from our series in Matthew, as uh, our lead pastor Steve is on, on uh, he's out of the office these two weeks. Uh, and so, um, as we go through this series uh, on Hebrews 11, I'll, I'll, I'll carry it on as I have opportunity to preach. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a number of these historical figures that we find there. So, last week we looked at the life of Abel and how he was commended as righteous. And so, here we're going to be looking at the life of Enoch and how he is commended as pleasing to God by his faith. And so, as we do that, reminder that the book of Hebrews is written as an encouragement for Christians to persevere in the faith, for them to persevere in endurance, trusting in the character of God and the promises of God. And so, as we progress through this series, I think it'll be helpful if we think about faith as like a prism or a diamond. And as we hold it up to the light, and observe it, there are multiple angles from which we can look at the same object or reality of that object and how light reflects through it so we can appreciate its different facets. So as we consider the faith of the lives of these Old Testament figures, there are countless ways in the specifics that faith can be on display for us to appreciate, to be encouraged by. And so each of these Old Testament figures is going to give us a different situation, so different circumstances, different personality, a different background in which faith will be on display in a unique way. Yet, at the same time, faith is going to find common ground in the sense that faith is going to be established on the objective character and promises of God. So today we're going to look at that prism at the life of Enoch and see how is his faith on display to show us something about the timeless nature of faith in a specific context. So with that, if you have a Bible, open up to Hebrews 11. It'll be our base text today. I'm looking at verses 5 and 6. So I'll read those and follow along. It says, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's our passage this morning. So we're going to look... Uh, have kind of two major parts to this morning. The first one is going to be the picture of faith, kind of in the life and context of Enoch. And then from there, we'll make a couple uh, lessons, have a couple lessons and applications that we can take away from that. So as we think about and consider the life of Enoch, I actually want to turn to Genesis 4 first and look briefly at the highlights that are in Genesis 4 and specifically the life of Lamech. And interestingly, if you were to trace out the genealogy of both Lamech and Enoch, they are both the seventh generation from Adam. So Adam and Eve were born, and then you, you trace down through the line and genealogy from, from Adam to, 
to Lamech, it goes through Cain. And then from life from Adam to Enoch, it goes through Seth. And if you remember, uh, Seth is born after Abel is murdered by his brother. And Seth is given to Adam and Eve kind of as a replacement, though you don't truly replace a human. But Seth comes in kind of under this branch and this lineage. And so here we have two men, Genesis 4 highlighting Lamech, and he's the seventh in, in that generation. And then we'll look at Enoch in the line of Seth, and he's also the seventh, which is interesting. Especially because as we go through the Bible, there's a, there's a significant weight and idea when we see the number seven show up. And so we, we can see that in different places in that on the seventh day, God rested. Or for example, uh, Israel marched around Jericho seven times, and we see seven show up there. We see seven show up in the book of Revelation on seven trumpets, seven, seven nightstands. So this idea of seven shows up from the beginning to the end. So it should just, when that shows up, we should look and ask, what's going on there? So with that, if you look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 19, I'm going to read just some of the section and make a couple comments on it to help give us some context. So 4.19 says this, And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the, other, the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestocks. livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore him Tubal-Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me and a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. So here, this is where author uh, Moses is writing of, of Lamech, trying to give us something of the history of, of people and what's going on. And here we come across Lamech. And we see a, a number of negative things here. Lamech is the first one on record to take two wives, which would be going against God's intention for the marriage covenant that you see in Genesis 2. So he takes two wives. Um, and then we also see this poem here. And in verse 23, in the Hebrew, there's a, there's a repetitive ending to this idea of this poem that it would have a rhyming nature that it ends kind of this cadence of me, I, me, I. <laughs> and there's, a, there's a, a selfish bent and focus to the nature of this poem on Lamech, almost as if he's boasting. And so in, the, in, this, in this poem, he boasts of an unjust murder. And he says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And so this, this is, uh, these, these are, uh, it's a reflection of the same statement, most not likely. So not that he killed two men, but, but he's restating it for emphatic purpose. And so he says that he's, he's killed a young man for for he simply got hit or struck. And likely out of anger, out of response, 
he kills him. And so we see an injustice in the nature of this murder and the nature of this death. And so it's not the eye for eye, tooth for tooth that the, uh, the law later lays out for a form of justice. In the end, it's an injustice by Lamech. And the worst part of it is that it ends in kind of a boastful recognition of what Lamech has done. So if you remember with Cain, Cain murdered Abel. And then God in his mercy says, spares uh, Cain's life and says, if anyone murders Cain, he will be avenged sevenfold, right? Like whoever touches this man. And so here Lamech is seeing the, how God has protected Cain for God's own purposes. We're not exactly sure why. But then Lamech is boasting that I've killed a man and actually, you know, with great and in an unjust way and let me be avenged 70, 70 times 7, 77 times. And so we just see here in the life of, of Lamech, it is the ultimate display of pride and wickedness. And it's like it's doubling. You see the offense of Adam and Eve. And then we see the offense of Cain, which like takes things and pushes it worse. And then we see the offense of Lamech, which comes and, and there's just this growing pride and wickedness in the heart of man. So this is the context the seventh generation under the line of Cain where things are. And so with that, it's, we, we want to paint that picture so that we can also understand the context in the life of the seventh man that comes through the line of Seth and is the eventual line of Christ, the eventual line of David, of those to come of which God will raise up an offspring. So by the seventh generation through the line of Cain, the earth has continually regressed further into sin and wickedness. Lamech is the final picture of that. So that's a backdrop. So let's, let's move and look at the line, of, the line of Seth that leads us to Enoch. So if you look over, we'll pick up here. I'll read uh, Genesis 5, verse 18 through 24. It says this, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So here we come to the life of Enoch. And again, this comes in the context of just a genealogy of the generations. And so what, what you see on the verse before with his father, Jared, is the typical pattern and, and kind of formula. They live, they have a son, they're firstborn most likely in that line, and then they lived and then they died, right? But here when we come to Enoch, we see that there's, there's a few things that are different that kind of break up that formula that was set before. And so we see all the days of Enoch 
for 365 years, but then it breaks the pattern and says, and there's no, and he died. And in that, it, it says that Enoch, he walked with God. And so this is kind of like a Hebrew euphemism for the idea that he was pleasing to God. So walked with God, he pleased God, which is where we see this idea that is going to show up um, in Hebrews 11, what we read earlier. We see that he, he walked with God and he was not, which is just a strange way to say <laughs> the reality that, and he was not living on earth anymore. He was not means he could not be found. He could not be discovered. So it's like, did he get lost? He just wander off, never to be found again? Well, no. It says, and he was not for because God took him. There's so much mystery surrounding Enoch and so many questions. Who even is Enoch? Why did God take him? What's the significance of this? So in the Bible, there's only several mentions of Enoch. We see the one here in Genesis 5. He's included in a genealogy in Luke 3 that just simply recognizes that he existed. We find another one in Jude, which I'll comment on in a second. And then here in Hebrews 11. So there's not much context for the life of Enoch. And because of this mystery surrounding him, there's actually a decent amount of extra-biblical literature often what would be in the form of kind of a, a apocalyptic writings connected to Jewish history. And so, because of the mystery of this statement that we see in Genesis, it leads itself to many people throughout history and through specifically Jewish history have speculated. And it kind of, like, leads us to speculate. It's like, what is going on here? This is, this is weird. It's so small and insignificant, yet so significant at the same time. And so as we come to this, to some degree, we just have to embrace that there are going to be aspects to this mystery that we're not going to get. But at the same time, I think there are some things that are made very clear and provide for us a great hope and an encouragement for faith. And so, kind of before we move on, it's one passage that's worth briefly commenting on is what's found in Jude um, verses 14 and 15. And you don't need to turn there. Um, I'll, I'll just read it and give a couple comments. But Pastor Steve actually preached a sermon on this passage within the past year. And here there's a prophecy that's attributed to Enoch. And, and here's what it says. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. And then Jude moves on. So Jude picks up and recognizes that Enoch is a real historical figure. He's the seventh from Adam, which is what we see in, in the... In, in the genealogy there. But nowhere else in the Bible is this quotation or prophecy found, but it clearly identifies Enoch, the same Enoch that we're looking at. 
And so Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he quotes Enoch, and it's likely pulled from another source that's not found in the Bible that we don't have today, but at the time he deemed it reliable to quote, and he makes this point about wickedness and God's eventual judgment on the ungodly. And if you look at that passage, the number of times that ungodly is said over and over again, it just describes the generation, the reality of the world before them. And so contextually, we get a picture of this present wickedness that's plaguing the earth during Enoch's day. We see the sin of Lamech and the surrounding generations as they are under the judgment of God. And the words spoken here by Enoch help, help illuminate God's posture towards ungodliness. So a little bit of light is, light is shed on a prophetic role that Enoch plays during his time, and that Enoch walked with God amidst a great and present darkness. He spoke boldly of a coming judgment against all ungodliness. And if you can think about the life and the role of a prophet and Enoch in that role, surely a message like this would not have been received well. But we see that Enoch had a God consciousness that saw things as they really are and believed God at his word. And of Enoch, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. Why? <laughs> Why did God take him? As we think about this idea, there's another similarity that can be found in the Old Testament of the taking up or carrying away of another. And that is Elijah, and that's found in 2 Kings chapter 2. You, you can go and read about that, and it's another fascinating and mysterious action of God. But the point being that there are few who have experienced this kind of thing, and really two, Enoch and Elijah, and Jesus, but we can talk about him in a second. He had a little different path. But this kind of thing is not the norm. So this jumps out and tells us something. And the fact that this happens so early in Old Testament history so early to the garden, I think is a helpful data point for us to hold on to, which we'll come and apply in a second. In the end, we are not told why God took Enoch, other than the affirmation of the fact that he walked with God and was pleasing to him. We simply see that he did. He did take him. And this is where the Hebrews 11 passage is helpful. And the author of Hebrews helps illuminate, really, the importance of Enoch and his role in, in redemptive history. So as we come back to Hebrews 11, after our kind of weird journey here, we see a few things that the Hebrews, the Hebrews author, he looks at the life and mystery of Enoch, and he emphasizes these things. He says that God, ultimately that God recognizes that God truly took Enoch. It says it three times in there, just to be clear. God took him, God took him, God took him. So Enoch was taken, God had taken him, now before he was taken. So this is meaning that Enoch was not just some senile, lost fellow that wandered off in the wilderness never to be found. Second, we see that before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So there's something in the life and the heart of Enoch that is pleasing to God. 
And ultimately, the Hebrew author is saying, Enoch lived by faith. It was by faith that he was commended as having pleased God. And then he was taken. So this is faith. So it's now that we want to turn our attention to a couple of lessons and applications regarding faith and the mysterious life of Enoch. So the first lesson we'll tease out, and the first one will be of greater length than the second one, but it's this. By faith alone, one can draw near and be pleasing to God. By faith alone, one can draw near and be pleasing to God. So here in the Hebrews passage, it says, to please God, we must believe two things. What are they? We must believe that he exists. We talked about that uh, last week in in verse 3, where it talks about uh, God is the creator of the universe. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So when we say that we believe God exists, is that he defines all reality, all purpose, all meaning. Everything comes back to him if we want to understand things rightly. So to, so to please God, we first need to recognize that he exists. You can't please someone if you don't know they exist, right? But the second part, he says, to please God, we must believe that he rewards those who seek him. So this idea that those who seek him will be rewarded. So as we think about these two ideas together here, um, one theologian helpfully provided this summary. He said, we must believe not only that God exists, but that God cares. So we must believe not only that God exists, but that God cares. So we see this idea that God rewards those he seeks and points to a caring God. So us as people, you and I, we do not submit very easily to a harsh authority. We will reluctantly, if, the right, if there's the right pressure points and motivations, but we do not submit easily to a harsh authority. But we will better submit to a good and caring authority. And so God is not some power trip deity looking for our worship and attention. No, instead he's a loving father who desires to lavish his good gifts and to share his presence with his creation. I previously said that faith is a God consciousness to see things as they really are and to believe him out of his word. But I want to expand and further deepen that definition to help us to see that faith is not merely God consciousness. But faith is consciousness of a loving and caring father who greatly desires to reward his children. In a well-known passage, Matthew 7, Jesus says this of the Father. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, good things to those who ask him? 
So here, Jesus is pointing to the loving and caring nature of the Father, pointing people to seek, to ask, to knock in faith, believing that not just God exists, but that God cares, that God wants to reward. And it's the heart of, the, the heart of God the Father towards his people, towards his children, is this. He is a rewarder. He rewards. He's a caring Father. And I think we would do well to check ourselves on this because I think this is a place that we often get off and we think about God just as the creator, but we miss out on the relational side of this, that our faith is going to be no good if we only think of God in this harsh light, but our faith is going to pay dividends when we see that he is a loving, caring father. It's the whole motivation that actually moves us towards him to believe that truth and that reality. And plenty of people pervert and twist that. Many characterizations of Christianity twist that. And we need to be careful to reject that, to see that that is not the God of the Bible and the heart of God. Now, God is holy, and that's, that's a whole other sermon, but, but his heart is for his people. And he, at his core, is a rewarder. So as we, we think about this, what is the reward that's brought up here? What is the reward in, in Hebrews 11? Well, according to the different lives highlighted in Hebrews 11, the reward is going to vary in the details from person to person. But the commonality that we'll see is that the full reward is, is both future-oriented and that the reward ends in the presence of God. So as we look at Enoch, the reward for Enoch is that he escapes death to go and be with God forever. So it's future in the sense that Enoch was commended for his faith before God took him. So if we kind of, again, think back to the context and the landscape in which Enoch is living and, and prophesying, we see that he lived among a perverse generation and for some time, uh, he, he spent a decent amount of time prior to experiencing or receiving the reward. So for Enoch, faith was future-oriented, looking to a God, looking to a reward. But the second thing we see is, that, is this idea of God's presence, is that ultimately he goes to be with God. God took him. So when it comes to the reward... I think it's important that we have some kind of idea of what the reward will be, what it will look like. And the Bible is full of illustrative language meant to capture our hearts and our imagination of what that will look like from the garden to the final garden, the new heaven and earth in Revelation. We see something that the Israelites are longing and looking for in the promised land and what that will be with God's presence amidst them. And that's important. We need, to, we need to get our imagination stirred on that sense, in that way. But it's equally important that we see God as the rewarder, as the good father who gives good gifts to his children. Because in the end, we need to trust that the caring God of the universe knows how to appropriately reward those who seek him. So if we get caught, too, caught up too much in the details of what the reward is, our eyes are fixed on that rather than on God who will give a reward that 
is better than we, we can imagine or think of ourselves. Our challenge is that we have too small a faith to actually trust that the future which God promises to us is worth it. And reflexively and unconsciously, many of us are running some kind of a cost-benefit analysis in our minds and hearts. We are chronically tempted to trade in long-term blessing for a short-term windfall. And C.S. Lewis captures this idea beautifully. He says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. And I love this quote because, again, we need to stir up the imagination, but at the core, we need to trust that God knows how to give a good gift, (laughs) that God knows how to reward. And in the end, our desires are too weak. We don't truly believe that God rewards those who seek him. We have undervalued the nature of the promise of God and his reward that he will grant to us. And this is where we are in need of faith to play the long game. And like one way I've thought about this, and I'm no investment specialist, but the basic idea of investment strategy is you put something in, you put an investment in long term understanding that there's going to be ups and downs, but in the end, something is going to pay off. And that's where we have the, co- the power of small contributions and then compounding interest, right? And I think in some ways, that's kind of the Christian life, is that a lot of times we want the reward, we want the windfall now. But in the Christian life, small deposits of faith, of waiting, not touching it, waiting, And to trust that the power of God's compounding interest is way more infinitely grand than anything that we can scheme in this life. And so, in this, we we need to believe, to have faith that God will grow and build something into such a big reward. And to set our hopes on that, to trust that the reward that he gives will be sufficient. It will be more than we can stand. I think it will be more than our hearts can contain. So the reason our desires are too weak is that we either misunderstand or we're disillusioned of the nature of the reward. And in the end, the reward is God himself. The reward is living in his presence as a child of the king amidst his kingdom. Our pleasure is too wrapped up in the things of earth that we all together miss the creator, the one who has given us the things, the one in whom all pleasure and delight are meant to be found. And as we think about this idea of the reward, the gift, the Bible speaks of two glorious truths. And one of them is that God delights in us, his children. And so Psalm 149, it says this, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. So if we are a child of God, 
Rest in the fact that he delights in us. He takes pleasure in us. He is pleased with us. So we see that that happens one way from God. But here's the second truth. We are to delight in God. Psalm 37 captures this. It says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So have you ever thought about this, that delight, pleasure, being pleasing goes two ways? The only context where this kind of delight and pleasure can take place is in the context of relationship. Where it goes wrong is when it becomes a one-way reality. God in his nature is the only permanent source of joy, delight, and pleasure. So the question for us is why do we cut ourselves off from him? and pursue delight elsewhere? Why do we try to make it a one-way thing where we just get delight, we use God to get what we want, <laughs> ditching him in the process? So why do we cut ourselves off? And the answer is sin. The answer is self-centered pride that thinks that life can be found somewhere else besides God. This is the pride of Adam and Eve when they exchanged the presence of God for the fruit, the illusion that they could become God. It's the pride of Cain that led him to murder his own brother. It's the pride of Lamech who is taking multiple wives and murdered a man for unjust reasons. There's a sin and a self-centered pride that grows in us and cuts us off from God. And as you see, through Adam and Eve, through Cain, through Lamech, there's just a further wedge being driven between people and their God. So that's why we need to hear this message that it is by faith that Enoch believed that God will one day return with the whole host of heaven to convict and bring judgment upon the ungodly. It was by faith that he believed in a better future in which God would make things right. It was by faith that he is commended as having pleased God. It is by faith that he is rewarded and taken up to heaven to be with God. And perhaps the most beautiful picture of God's pleasure is found in a passage we just recently considered as a church in Matthew 3, when Jesus was baptized and a dove descends on him, and a voice from heaven says this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. The love and pleasure that the Father has for the Son is the same pleasure that he has for those who draw near to him in faith alone through Christ alone. What a gift of God. The, the same pleasure that he internally enjoyed with the Son he invites us into that, and that is directed towards us. It's by faith alone that we can draw near and be pleasing to God. So what's keeping you from drawing near to God? What's discouraging your faith? Is there some unchecked and growing pride? Are there past disappointments are there wrong expectations of the Christian life that you've had that, of what God should do for you? Do you see God as a harsh authority rather than a caring father? 
And we need to hear this, that by your very faith and desire to humbly draw near to God, you will be found pleasing in his sight. By your very faith in Christ alone and desire to draw humbly near to him, you will be pleasing in his sight. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So that's the encouragement for faith for us this morning to draw near to God with a humble heart, knowing that he receives all who come to him with a humble and contrite heart. So that's our, our first point here. And again, the second one is shorter, but the, by faith alone, we can draw near and be pleasing to God. And here's the second one as we wrap up. By faith alone, we have hope and life beyond life. By faith alone, we have hope and life beyond this life. So Enoch had faith in the truth that God rewards those who seek him. And God rewarded him. Through faith, he avoided the threatening reality of death. So as we look at the lives of Enoch, of Elijah, of Jesus, they all point to an invisible spiritual reality that's hard for us to see right here, right now. And if we have any dependence or trust on the Bible as the authoritative and inerrant word of God, then we have to ask, where did they go? Where did Enoch go? Where was he carried off to? Where did Elijah go? When Christ descended from the mountain to the heavens, where did he go? These ascensions, this being taken away, points us to the fact that there is an invisible spiritual reality outside of us. And for some of us, this can be un- unnerving. But I think in the end, it's meant to be comforting. From the very beginning of the Bible, the taking up of Enoch points to the fact that there is life beyond life. There is life beyond this earthly life. And there is another path that ultimately doesn't end in death and a return to dust. Consider the spectrum found here in our first two hearers of the faith. Abel, death by unjust persecution. Enoch, taken away to be with God forever. What does this tell us about the Christian life? The death of Abel points to the death of Christ. The carrying away of Enoch points us to the ascension and glorification of Christ. No mere man in the Bible was ever intended to be the full embodiment of faith. Not Abel, not Enoch, not Abraham, not Moses, not David. That is until Jesus came. The promises of God and the hope of the Christian life are embodied in the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the object and the true hero of our faith. And only in him alone can we be commended as having pleased God. So the mystery of Enoch is meant to draw our attention to the fact that there is more beyond this life. And ultimately in Christ, we can share in the same heavenly ascension to be with God forever. So God, give us grace to draw near in faith to Jesus that we might be pleasing in your sight. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others 
but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.